Well, hello, and welcome to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School from Maui, Hawaii. It's Michael Benner with you again this week, and happy to be here. And uh, looking forward to our topic of the day today, which is compassion, if you will, the passion of compassion. I uh, I get a lot of information from dictionaries. Uh, it's a good place to begin. You don't get in-depth information from dictionaries, certainly, but um, in checking a dictionary, as I did today, on compassion, I find that uh, most references listed as an emotion, that compassion is an emotion. Uh, I think it probably is, but today we're going to talk about it in a greater context as well. Compassion, as you might expect, as a level of consciousness, a level of awareness, a degree of being awake to a way of thinking and a level of mind that connects everything to everything. And uh, so is it an emotion? Yeah, it's an emotion. Is it more than an emotion? Sure, that's my point, really. Uh, I'm going to bring up my newsletter here. You won't see it, but just for my purposes, I want to read the quotation I put in the newsletter this week about today's class. Here it is. From, of all people, Albert Einstein. You know, here's a very, very knowledgeable person, certainly. One of the great scientists of the 20th century, and yet Unless you study Albert Einstein, read some of his books, or start to familiarize yourself with his quotable quotes, you may not realize just how enlightened this man came to be. Through his study of physics, he became quite the metaphysician. And through his study of physical science, became quite the social scientist, I would say. So let me share with you this quotation. Hopefully you saw it in the newsletter this week. This is Einstein. He said, A human being is part of the whole, called by us, universe, a part limited in time and space. He experiences himself, his thoughts and feelings, as something separated from the rest, a kind of an optical delusion of his consciousness. And this delusion is a kind of prison for us, restricting us to our personal desires and affection only for the few people nearest us. Our task must then be to free ourselves from this prison by widening our circle of compassion to embrace all living creatures and the whole of nature in its beauty. Wow. Uh, beauty as a path is another topic for another day also. But notice the word compassion as a key that unlocks the prison door, a prison of separateness that we live in by agreement with the rest of humanity that, for the most part, has failed to attain a level of consciousness where they see life as one whole thing. All right? You do not often hear people talking about the creation of the universe 
as the great separation. Because most religions, especially the Western religions, think of the most supreme deity, God, the Absolute, the Creator, the source of all things, as somehow separate from its creation. God, it's believed in Judaism and Christianity and Islam as well, and, and other religions, though not so much in Eastern philosophy. Uh, where they better understand uh, harmony and unity and inclusiveness. The problem with the monotheism of the West is that it separates the creator from its creation. And it has an image of God with a form of some sort. They take too literally the idea that humans were created in God's image. So God has arms and legs and feet and toes and fingers and does he need to trim his fingernails? Does he really have a beard? Is he a white guy? Um, heaven becomes buildings and streets of gold. And You know, if you're talking to children, or if you're trying to promote a religion thousands of years ago, I, I suppose that elementary school stuff uh, is good in creating an entry point. But at some point, you should graduate from that, and religion hasn't been real good at providing, none of them, at providing uh, grad school, so to speak. And it would be there, that's what mysticism is, I think, it would be there that we come to understand that in spite of the appearance of things and creation as the great separation into form, that ultimately behind the veil there is only one thing at work. A couple of months ago, we did, or maybe not quite that long ago, we did a program on Hermetic philosophy, the philosophy of the ancient Egyptians. Turned out to be a real popular webinar, actually. A lot of people liked it. And the ancient Egyptians refer to God as the one thing. The best translation from the ancient language of the Egyptians for God is the one thing, the one thing, the only thing. It's capitalized, the one thing. Right? That's all there is. There is no thing, there is nothing, and no thing that is not part of the one thing. Well, down through the years, that also became called in mysticism and in hermetic alchemical philosophy, the one life. And that's sort of a new age term, the one life. The idea that there's only one mind ultimately at work, that your access to mind is access to your little part of the totality, and that your access to love and compassion, our theme for the day today, compassion, is part of a little sliver, slice, or a particular point of view from the enormity of the one thing that has a will, that has love, and has intention to express itself right, through this manifestation, through this great separation. But the fact that you feel alienated and isolated and separated from all other things, that we reach out to make connections, 
is is largely a function of this delusion we have, this delusion that Einstein describes as a prison of consciousness, where we feel like we're not part of another person, that love is this longing to connect. Maybe love and compassion is evidence that you're already connected, right? And as you learn to be alone, for example, to go into a, a meadow or a forested place or get out of the city and sit alone, seemingly by appearance you're alone in nature and yet feel the connection to all things. This is the uh, experience of of, of knowing that there's really only one thing or one life going on here and that the appearance of separation is an illusion. A couple of weeks ago, even more recently than the Hermetic Show, we did a program here in the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School on the appearance of things versus substance. So we create the prison. This is like Sting's uh, record, Soul Cages. Right? Einstein would have liked that. And I don't know if Sting knew about the Einstein quote when he wrote it. It's not an uncommon allegory in mysticism to talk about life in separated form as a prison or a cage that the soul could get out of because we have the keys if we would but use them. And what Einstein is saying in this wonderful quotation, and what I'm offering you today is a sense that certainly one of the master keys to let your soul out of its ego cage, its prison of form, is compassion. And uh, to, uh, to take that admonition in Christianity and Judaism, though it's really found in all religions, to love your neighbor, goes has to go farther on down the block than the people you happen to know because they live next door. Love your neighbor is wherever they happen to be in the world or for that matter in the universe. <laughs> Who knows? You know, I, I, I uh, last night coming home from a friend's house with my wife Doreen and, and a friend who's visiting us, we got out of the car and had forgotten to leave the back porch light on, so it was really dark as we walked to the from the car to the house. And my God, the the stars were—it was a clear night here in Maui, and the stars were. That sounds trite to say, but they just seemed so close you could reach up and touch them. And uh, that may be a a worn allegory, but that's certainly the way it appeared. It was just so magnificent, and you know I. I like watching the Science Channel and Discovery Channel and all those documentaries on deep space and galaxies and try to get a sense of the magnitude of the universe here and the enormous potentials and possibilities. Uh, the idea that we exist alone on this planet and there's no other humans, no other life forms made in the image of the Creator is ridiculous. All life forms are in the image of the, cre of, the, of the Creator. There's just something special about human beings, and I think it's our ability to think about our thoughts that separates us. It's, it's our ability to reflect that separates us. 
One could even argue true compassion separates us from animals. Do animals know love? Well, I think so. I don't think there's any question that animals understand love. Um, I talk about my cats sometimes, and I've had lots of dogs in my life, and people who rescue pound animals will tell you about dogs and cats that have been abused and have every right to be afraid of human beings. And yet the trust can be reestablished. An animal can learn to trust a human being again after having been severely abused, beaten, starved, uh, yelled at, ignored, hit, whatever. Uh, that trust can be reestablished. That's a beautiful thing. Animals do have that. Uh, maybe on some level, uh, plants in their own kingdom have a sense of affinity for each other in the mineral kingdom too. That's certainly the sense that the mystics bring to the table, that everything is connected. There is, as I said a few minutes ago, but one thing at work, one life, in spite of the appearance of separation or the idea that creation is this great separation. Well, the other half of the cycle is then for that which has been separated to find its way back to unity, and that path is through harmony. Do you see the trinity in that? Unity, harmony, diversity. And if we are diverse and separated, then how do we get home again? How do you get, quote, back to heaven, to the unity, to the fullness, the richness, and the oneness of all things? Through harmony. Diversity must go through harmony to get to unity. In Christianity, this is Jesus representing the Christ or the Christos, the soul of things, the love, saying nobody comes to the Father but through me. In other words, you don't get back to unity without going through harmony. We have to learn to get along. We have to see ourselves in our neighbor and the one life in all things. That's the end of war. That's the end of poverty. And that's how we approach justice in the world. And as you wake up, you have no choice. You have no choice. You might have a choice about whether you come to this webinar on Sunday. You may have a choice about which books you buy at the neighborhood uh, bookstore. But once you understand your relationship to the one life, what choice do you have but to let yourself out of the prison that we've put ourselves in by agreeing with the conventional wisdom that appearance is reality and you really are separate <laughs> and alienated and alone. So I'm going to read this one more time, then I'm going to talk a little more about how that path of harmony can be approached through compassion, not only as an emotion, but compassion as a level of consciousness, a degree of awareness or awakeness. Let me read it again. Einstein, a human being is part of the whole called by us universe, the one verse, right, universe, a part limited in time and space, 
The human experiences himself, his thoughts and feelings, as something separated from the rest, a kind of an optical delusion of his consciousness. This delusion is a kind of a prison for us, restricting us to our personal desires and to affection for a few persons nearest to us. Our task must be to free ourselves from this prison by widening our circle of compassion to embrace all living creatures and the whole of nature in its beauty. I just think that is, you know, so well said. I mean, any mystic would be proud of having written words like that, much less, you know, an empiricist or a scientist uh, like Einstein. Well, I mentioned earlier that uh, you can learn a lot uh, from uh, from dictionaries. You can learn a lot from Google and the Internet as well. And in thinking about and preparing for this webinar, this class here today, I found an article in Science News from March 27th of last year, so not quite a year old, 11 months ago. Uh, this, um, I'm sorry, this is called Science Daily. Science Daily is the name of the magazine, and the website is sciencedaily.com. The W is dot sciencedaily.com. And then you can do a little search. And in an article from March 27th of last year, with a headline, Compassion Meditation Changes the Brain. Right? This is empirical science. <laughs> this is the appearance of things. And even that separated brain is changed when we let ourselves out of that that prison when we use compassion to widen our circle of love and appreciate that real love is consciousness. When we say love is the only thing that's true and the only thing that's real and the only thing that lasts, we're not talking about emotional love. We may also be talking about emotional love, but primarily we're talking about love as consciousness, as awareness. As you wake up, you become more loving. There's just no two ways about it. There, there's no distinction between the terms or the concepts. A person that is not loving is a person that is in a trance, made out of fear. They're sleepwalking through a world of separated forms, saying, I am this and you are that. And we are us, but you are them. And, of course, we're right and you're different, so you must be wrong. And now to prove uh, what a loving, spiritual, religious person I am, we're going to kill you for disagreeing. All right, so we got a little problem here. Here's an article from Science News, less than a year old, that says, Compassion Meditation Changes the Brain. Let me read just a little of this for you, okay? The article begins, can we train ourselves to be compassionate? A new study suggests the answer is yes. Cultivating compassion and kindness through meditation affects brain regions that can make a person more empathetic to other people's mental states, say researchers at the University of Wisconsin at Madison. Okay, that's pretty far out. 
cultivating compassion and kindness. This is the message of Tibetan Buddhism, the Dalai Lama, loving kindness and compassion. That's all the Dalai Lama talks about. It's the solution to everything, right? But moreover, it's the path. It's not merely a destination. It's, more importantly, the path, the, the via, the way to get to a destination, home again, you know. And so here, cultivating compassion and kindness through meditation affects brain regions that can make a person more empathetic to other people's mental states. More empathetic. I know how you feel, right? So what's the best response to fear, to anger, and to hatred, to any feeling of separation? Compassion. And its first cousin, forgiveness, which hopefully we'll get a chance to talk about as well. But I want to stay focused. The article in Science Daily goes on. It says, this study was the first to use functional MRIs, magnetic resonance imaging. You know, you know what an MRI is, to look right into the brain, 3D. To indicate that positive emotions, such as loving kindness and compassion, can be learned in the same way as playing a musical instrument or being proficient in a sport. You can learn to love. You can learn to be kind. You can, you can train the brain. In other words, the brain has this potential built into it, but it requires an intention. It requires a will. It requires an attitude to develop that potential to be loving, to be kind, to be thoughtful, to be compassionate. And then the brain wakes up and says, oh, look, I had this all along, built in. What does that tell you? Uh, Let's see. These MRI scans reveal that the brain circuits used to detect emotions and feelings were dramatically changed. This is not just a model of mind now, but we're talking about gray matter, blood flow, neurology, cerebral spinal fluid. That's all you got in a brain is the brain, the gray matter, cerebral spinal fluid, and blood. That's it, right? And each of those elements is affected in a positive, growthful way when you meditate on loving kindness, what does that tell you? Does it not say that is our nature? That <laughs> that it's that that it's natural? Well, you say, well, fear is also natural, and we know a lot more about that. Well, this is the evolution, you see, that we've allowed by some rather simple-minded people with hidden agendas to bifurcate into either creationism or evolution. And whenever you see somebody coming from a fear-based place using or, see what happens when you put and in place of the or. See, how about creation and evolution? How about creating evolution, creating growth, creating life forms that are conscious and at least the most uh, highly evolved, I'll, I'll say, at the 
risk of offending animal lovers who want to conflate human beings with the animal kingdom. Look, we pull on the animal kingdom, we pull on the plant kingdom, we pull on the mineral kingdom. We are totally reliant on the three kingdoms below us. We have to have our minerals and our vitamins, we have to eat plants, and we have to care for animals. We get to use them in appropriate ways. I don't know that we have to eat them, but they're here and we need to care for all the lower kingdoms because our lives depend upon it. Okay. I was just reading the other day, there's diabetics that have an alternative to medicine now that is made out of a, a gland extract from a particular lizard someplace. If that lizard were to become extinct, uh, this medicine would be lost. And you know that about plants. And, and the fact that we're losing huge areas of rainforest that may contain plants that could cure some of the most dread diseases in the world. And yet still, why do we cut down the rainforest uh, to graze cattle for a 99-cent hamburger in America that is not good for you in the first place? So we're going to cut down the rainforests and all the medicine to graze cattle that will make you more sick. Sort of crazy, but that's what happens when humanity lives in an either-or world rather than a you-and-me world. The article in Science Daily goes on, This research suggests that individuals, from children who may be engaged in bullying, to people prone to recurring depression, and society in general could benefit from such meditative practices, according to the director of the study, Richard Davidson, professor of psychiatry and psychology at the University of Wisconsin at Madison, and an expert on imaging the effects of meditation. He's an MRI expert that's worked in this area of seeing what happens to the brain itself, not the mind, but the brain itself when women and men alter their levels of awareness through relaxation and meditation in all of its different forms. Davidson and UW-Madison Associate Scientist Antoine Lutz, or Lutz, were the co-principal investigators of this project. It was part of their ongoing investigation of a group of Tibetan monks and lay practitioners who have practiced meditation for a minimum of 10,000 hours. In this case, Lutz and Davidson worked with 16 monks who have cultivated compassion meditation practices. Uh, 16 aged-matched controls with no previous training were taught the fundamentals of compassion meditation two weeks before the brain scanning took place to... Uh, well, you know how control group works, so you have a baseline to compare uh, your other group with. So there you go. We begin with empirical science, hardcore science, physical science, saying, yeah, uh, in the brain there are changes when you meditate on love and kindness and compassion positive, growthful changes. You can read the rest of the article when you do the research. Or if you can't find it, email me, and I'll send you a link to this article. 
email me at mb, my initials, at theagelesswisdom.com. Or just use reply for one of the newsletters, newsletter at focusedfashion.com. And uh, in either case, mb at theagelesswisdom.com. Say, send me that Science Daily article you read Sunday on meditation. I want to show that to my kids or my parents or or my neighbors or my preacher, you know? How about a little more loving kindness in Christianity, right? How about a little more loving kindness, not just for the Tibetan monks, but for, for everybody around the world? Again, not simply as an emotion. This is the next point I want to go to. But as a level of consciousness, a level of awareness, a degree of being awake. Now, as I said, uh, uh, compassion, loving kindness, certainly dips into the emotional nature. Those of you with a yoga background, uh, you understand how the chakras work. The first chakra at the root being basically survival. The second, the sacral plexus, being about uh, reproduction, the gonads, uh, lust, and uh, power, sex and money and patriarchy and our influence over other people. That's a slight evolution above survival itself in the second chakra, survival being the root chakra, the tail of the, tail of the spine, the base of the spine and the tail. The third chakra is the solar plexus, and this is where the emotions are centered. And is loving kindness and compassion in the third chakra as well? Yeah, each chakra depends on the ones below it. So there is an emotional and even a, a sacral and root aspect to loving kindness. But primarily, compassion exists in the heart chakra, which is in the very center of the chakra system, three chakras below, three above. And if you study any any mysticism, you'll know that the word heart and the word soul both mean middle or center. It's the balance point. So uh, the idea of compassion in the heart chakra means that um, compassion is love without selfishness, love without jealousy. The very fact that we could have in our solar plexus, in our bellies, a jealous love, a kind of love tainted with a fear that we're going to lose it, <laughs> you better keep your eye on your boyfriend or your girlfriend, uh, uh, your husband or your wife, because they just might cheat on you, right? Well, that's not love. Uh, now we're back to the first and second chakra. That's lust, right? That's just the excitement of the chase, and you're allowing yourself to be run by you know, hormones and, and uh, uh, instincts, more, more animal-type behavior. So the way animals breed is basically by instinct. Um, again, animals, I think, sense love, but that's not really why they mate, and that's really not why humans mate. Uh, but love is something that can grow after that. It's already there, just like a little plant or a little seed, a little sprout. But it can be cultivated, it can grow, and it can become more. It can actually then blossom, uh, flower, and 
bring forth fruits and seeds and continue with that allegory, if you wish. So my point here is that loving kindness and compassion is more than an emotion. Is it an emotion? Yeah, a very special emotion. But it's more than that. It is, some say, a quality of love, uh, of, of truth, of consciousness itself, that is stimulated by observing the suffering of other people. This means that it takes courage to be compassionate. It means that a compassionate person can no longer ignore or deny injustice and the suffering in our midst. That to be a compassionate person, to be a loving person, to enjoy all the benefits of being that awake, we have to look at the suffering among us and the injustice around the world. Part of the way I see the change in the world right now, this, the, the emergence of this new age that has been prophesized, and some say it's going to happen in 2012, some say it happened in the 60s, some people say before that, well, we're in the doorway. I mean, you don't have to nail it down to a day or an hour. We're clearly in transition to a whole new age where significant numbers of women and men in the world are waking up and looking around and saying, we are more than our selfishness. We are more than our fear. We are more than our competitiveness, and we're certainly more than our lust for power. You know, sometimes people in a political discussion or, or, or other discourse will talk about why it is that people who have tens of millions and hundreds of millions of dollars uh, are never satisfied, that no matter how much money they have, uh, they want more. It's because it's not really money that they're after. Greed is not about money. It's about power. And money creates, especially big money, an appearance of power. So <clears throat> here you got Bush and Cheney and Rumsfeld and these other people, all of whom are worth tens of millions and in some cases hundreds of millions of dollars. Donald Rumsfeld's in his 70s. He could be retired home playing with the grandkids setting up trust funds so that his whole family is set forever. But no, he's got to be out starting war um, and messing up the world. Why? Because of a lust for power, an addiction like, like heroin, but worse, like crack, but worse. They're looking for power, but of course, it's the power of one thing over another. And if the truth is that there is no separation, then how can one thing have power over another except by an appearance, don't you see? Loving kindness and compassion transcends and even transmutes or transforms that paradigm into, again, a more harmonious and eventually unitive paradigm. And this is where 
the great inspirational women and men have have said things like, if there is an injustice anywhere in the world, then I suffer also. If there is even one child anywhere in the world that cries itself to sleep for hunger, then I too am hungry, you see. Now don't take that too literally, at least not at first. But you have to you have to face compassion requires us to face what we don't want to look at and to acknowledge the existence of what what we'd rather ignore and deny and so compassion takes great courage, doesn't it? It really requires and demands that if we expand our brains, if we develop our capacity to understand to be aware to live a more harmonious and creative and productive life, we have to look at what scares us and what hurts us, like personal development work, where to develop your own personal consciousness or awareness, you have to look at the pain in your own life and the suffering and the trauma in your own life, the therapist, the counselor will always say to you, well, the only way out is through. There's no end run around this. There's no way you can push away or ignore or deny that trauma and ever live a happy, fulfilled, and productive life. You have to go back. You know, the Viennese psychiatrist stroking his goatee and saying, well, tell me about your childhood. It's uh, it's an archetype for a reason because so much of our pain is bound up and carried by the false assumptions we make in childhood as a result of the way we were treated, right? Used or abused or ignored. I wonder how many people are aware that to ignore children is child abuse, right? It's not. Child abuse is not limited to hitting them or screaming at them or calling them names. You can ignore your kids. That's abusive, right? You're creating work for therapists in the future, that's for sure. And to some extent, none of us escape it. Everybody's got issues. That's part and parcel of living in form and experiencing the great separation is you will have issues, right? The... <laughs> And they have to be faced. Well, compassion says now you have to do that same process. You have to look at what scares you. You have to look at what overwhelms you. You have to look at what you'd rather ignore and deny to be the kind of person that you want to be, to have the compassion. You have to look at the suffering. And that certainly is one approach to compassion is to be aware of the suffering in the world and then compelled to do something about it and to also deal with the fact that your impact may be minimal but it may be greater than you'll ever know it may trickle out like the stories you hear about the butterfly flapping its wings in China and creating a thunderstorm in Kansas you know, that everything is everything. Again, if there's just one life, then 
every action that you take. In fact, I'll go, I'll go further than that. Not only every action that you take, but every thought that you think and every feeling that you feel has an impact, most likely greater and more significant than you'll ever know. But then ask yourself, why do I need to know the impact? Maybe it's only the ego part of me that even needs to know to what extent am I making a difference. Would it not be enough to know that you're just making a difference? Like that story from the first Chicken Soup for the Soul book about throwing the starfish in the ocean. and After the storm, the little boy walking down the beach and and tossing all these stranded starfish back into the ocean so they'll live. And he comes upon an older and more cynical man who says, what in the world are you doing? He says, well, I'm saving the lives of these starfish. And the man says, well, it doesn't matter. You're not going to make a difference. Look at all these starfish. There's thousands. You can't do all that. You can't make a difference. It doesn't matter. Undeterred, the little boy just keeps tossing the starfish back into water saying to the man, well, it matters to that one, you see. Uh, a classic story. I don't know who gets credit for that, but uh, it's a good one. And there are, there are other similar questions. Only the ego, only your ego really needs to know that the difference you're making is significant. The essence of who you are, the true self, the, 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 the part you're awakening with your approach to compassion doesn't care how big or how small, how significant or seemingly insignificant your contribution is in the scheme of things. All that matters is that you care. A nice synonym for loving compassion is to simply care. remember a couple of years ago when I was still on KPFK, I wanted to do a program on love, but I had a dilemma and that the word love is overused. Um, people will say, I love my new car. Or I got a raise, I love it. Oh, this money, I love it. <laughs> well, you know, uh, they're, they're, the word is overused, and it's, so it's lost its meaning. Have you ever said a word over and over and over and over and over again? until it just sounds silly and it loses all of its meaning, you can choose any word, say it out loud enough times, and within a matter of moments, it'll lose its meaning, it'll lose its impact for you. I'm afraid love is like that. And even if we capitalize love, uh, it gets dragged back into the gutter by Madison Avenue and by our advertising. But, again, to think of love as consciousness, as awareness, uh, certainly for me, I, I, I will tell you that that was a big breakthrough. When I, I finally read it or somebody told me, I learned in a class from a teacher or, or a mentor about capital L love as more than emotion, but love as consciousness. How awake and how aware are you? And so what I ended up doing was doing that radio program not on love but on caring. And I Ask the question at the top of the show, what do you care about and why do you care? And it was a fabulously popular program. The phones just rang off the hook. I got emails for a week afterwards about the program you did on caring. 
I would say, why do you care? What do you care about and why do you care? Not what do you love and why do you love. I think that would have been much more difficult. But if I said, well, the program today is on caring, your caring nature. What do you care about and why do you care? Why do you listen to KPFK? You know, why do you donate money to KPFK? Why do you become a contributor? Why would you become a contributor to our work at FocusedPassion.com? You don't need to. Everything's free. You don't have to contribute. Why would you care to contribute 99 cents, right? Because you are a caring person. See? What you care about, what you're interested in speaks much more to the nature of who you are, to your identity, than what you think. That's a pretty profound concept. I've said it before. I'll certainly say it again in the future. Your identity and your motives, who you are and why you do the things you do, have much less to do with what you think about yourself or others than what you care about, than what's in your heart. And you can lift all of that or expand all of that by meditating on loving kindness and compassion. And we've already talked about how to do that in the world with hunger and injustice. But how about in your personal life? How about responding to your own fear, to your own anger, and to your own frustration with compassion and its first cousin, forgiveness. Again, both are more about you than the subject of your attention. They're more objective than subjective. right? So if somebody upsets you, makes you angry, and you're irritated, you can look at that behavior in a mental, judgmental way and talk about them as bad or wrong or, you know, that's why they are inferior to you. Or you can remember a time that you behaved a lot like that. Right? My whole approach to driving on the freeway changed at one point a few years ago. We don't have freeways on Maui part of why we're here, but I spent a lot of years on the freeways of Southern California and before that back in Detroit and Michigan. And whenever somebody would behave rudely in traffic, you know, cut you off, dart in and out, scare you, or maybe visually flash you that middle finger gesture the windows are down, yell at you, honk their horn at you, whatever. Notice how we immediately, reactively, reflexively move to a fight or flight, either or, you or me, I'm right and you have wronged me, without even considering the possibility that his behavior may not have been initiated so much as a reaction to something you did to him that you don't even know about. You don't even know that you just cut him off. And he's reacting to you thinking you're the bad person and he's the one that has been abused <laughs> or mistreated. But no, 
he's yelling at us and honking the horn and cutting in and out, and we're the victim, you see, without even considering that empathy and loving kindness and compassion might create an expanded level of awareness such that you recognize this is his response or reaction to something you just did unconsciously. And even if that's even if that's not the case, can you remember a time that you may have inadvertently upset somebody and not even realized what you did? Is it even conceivable to you that that might have happened? This is the nature of empathy. It leads to compassion, but compassion leads to empathy. It's, I know how you feel. That's a quality of love. And not only do I know how you feel in my mind, but I care about how you feel in my heart. And I would like to heal that separation and let us both be part of a process where we both release ourselves to use the sting allegory of the soul cage or the Einstein quote about the prison that separative consciousness puts us in. We can let each other out of that prison and repeat that process. Anytime you're angry or irritated or frustrated, somebody gets you, goat, upsets you, even if you don't know how or why, the process will unfold. Go to loving kindness and compassion. Pull on what you do know about it. And if it happens in traffic, you're probably waiting to get home to be able to meditate on it. But in addition to just bringing it to mind in a mindful way, wait a minute, I have an alternative. I, I, I don't have to add to the negativity and the hostility and the fear and the hatred in the world. Even within the confines of my own soul cage, my own separative prison of form, I could make a contribution, however significant or insignificant it may be. I don't care. My ego doesn't need to know the level of significance. But I could benefit from consciously, deliberately practicing the substitution of a compassionate response for an angry, vengeful, knee-jerk reaction. You say to yourself, to the amygdala in the brain, yeah, I'm upset, and that guy really pissed me off, but I'm not in any physical danger. And so I can breathe and relax. And that either-or goes away, replaced by a third way, a fourth possibility. Uh, a fifth alternative, collectively known as the middle way or the mystic's path. All these options, all these variations and permutations and combinations. Well, maybe he's in a hurry because he just found out somebody he loves is sick. Well, maybe he's driving that way because he's got a sick kid in the back seat. He's trying to get to the hospital. Or his wife, who you thought you saw, uh, in the passenger seat is about to have a baby or is hemorrhaging. I mean, you just don't know. So we don't have a right, if we're going to be sentient, conscious beings, to react as if to reinforce the reality of separation, our responsibility or ability to choose our response, to be ever more sentient, conscious, and enjoy all the benefits and rewards that go that 
with that uh, require us to deliberately recover and substitute a response of compassion, love, and kindness and forgiveness for the survival root chakra uh, knee-jerk reaction of survival. You're not really in danger just because a guy drove by you quickly honking his horn and flipping you off. That's not danger, right? If you react in kind and the, and the confrontation confrontation escalates, <laughs> you might create some danger. A lot of people carry guns now, and they get angry enough to use them, they will. Meditation grows your brain. You want to be smarter. You want to be more loving. You want life to be more fulfilling and more harmonious. Well, you have to pretend before you tend to do anything. You've got to practice having that experience. Mental rehearsal, guided imagery, visualization. Go to meditation. We'll do it in just a few minutes here to give you a sense of just one approach to it. And then you can Google Tibetan Buddhism or loving kindness and compassion or read the Science Daily article and some of the other articles or scientists, hardcore imperial science, empiricals, <laughs> it's a Freudian slip, imperial scientists, right? Empirical scientists are using MRIs, magnetic resonance imaging, to see the incredibly positive impact that meditation has on the brain that mystics have talked about from time out of mind. Women and men who have devoted some significant percentage of every day to watching themselves think and feel. Rather than just being your thoughts or being your feelings, you can take a breath, feel safe enough, relaxed enough, turn away from physical sense and sensation, and look at your thought process. You can watch your stream of consciousness and how this thought jumped to that other thought and how that thought then jumped to still another thought. One of these days in the not too distant future I'd like to do a class here in the Sunday Mystery School on Ernest Wood's Four Roads of Thought. Ernest Wood is a theosophist who wrote a book called Concentration about 40 or 50 years ago where he proposed there's only in, in stream-of-consciousness thinking, where you're not applied to a specific task, but your mind is just generating thoughts anyway, or some would say attracting thought forms, that there's only four ways that one thought can lead to another thought. Well, to be aware of the way this thought connected to that thought stream, and then that thought stream suddenly leapfrogged, grasshoppered, to this other thought stream, to be aware of that is contemplation, is meditation. It's one form of meditation. And it raises your not only your awareness, but your identity of self. Gee, all this time I thought I was my thoughts. I thought I was my feelings. I thought I was a victim of some combination of thinking and feeling. And now I've learned to deliberately, consciously come to a place where I can witness thoughts and feelings 
you know, like climb out of the stream, the thought-feeling stream, up onto the bank and watch them go by but not even get wet. And that's a place where loving, kindness, compassion, based on harmony and unity and the fact that there's just one mind and one one heart at work in this universe. Why isn't it called a multiverse? There's so much diversity. Why isn't it the diverse? Why is it the universe? Because <laughs> there's just one thing going on. Even the word alone really is all one. we got to wake up, folks. That's all we're, that's, and then practice the waking up process. Now there's a lot more I could say about it, but I'm going to at this point encourage you to use the comment form, provided you're listening live. Who knows where you are in space and time. You may be listening to this uh, far off into the future. I don't know. I hope so. That'd be, that's a cool thought for me to fantasize about. But wherever you happen to be in space and time, if you're listening now live, on the web, you can use the form in front of you to submit a question or a comment. Include your name and the city where you are, and uh, we'll go to those now. Let me refresh the page here and see who's on. A lot of folks just want to say hi. Uh, okay. Let's start with uh, Robert in Irvine. He says, Similar to the Science Daily article that you read, that you shared, I remember reading a science article about minor neurons, which describes how the neurons are fired when an animal observes certain actions performed in another animal of the same species. The neurons have been observed in primates and are believed to be in humans as well. The studies suggest that when we see another in emotional pain, we can experience the same, allowing us to respond with empathy. That's suggesting it's a survival mechanism there to help somebody, to empathize with somebody as part of your survival. It's in your interest <laughs> to help another. Robert goes on, he says, it's fascinating to find empathy evolved within all life forms and within us uh, that that can grow into compassion. I, you know, I, maybe it's just me, but I, I keep thinking about my animals. And, you know, uh, for all the dogs that I've had and, and, and loved in my life, uh, we're, we're down to two cats now. Uh, one of which was a pound rescue and the other was a feral cat that was just wandering through our neighborhood and we fed it for weeks and left the window open and it kept coming back and even though it was neutered and somebody had obviously owned it at some point it was largely feral living on rainwater and rat under the house until we started feeding it well both of these cats that one and the rescue cat uh, were sort of skittish and nervous and you know, they, they would allow you to pet them and touch them, but they weren't really these cuddly, cozy cats that curl up on your lap. Neither one of them were, at least not then. They trusted us to an extent, but, you know, they always had one eye cocked. So <laughs> they were always a little 
a little cautious, you know. But watching that trust build uh, from, you know, the attention that Doreen and I would give them, petting them, talking to them, reassuring them, feeding them, caring about them and expressing that in as many ways as possible. You can see the trust being brought forward. You can see these animals, one of them learning again to trust human beings, the other one learning initially for the first time in its life to trust. And, you know, they both have their personalities. They're both that's one of the amazing things about animals is how unique they are as you get to know them, the, the different personalities that, that these animals have. Even, you know, birds and, and fish have personality if you get to know them well enough. I mean, how can you account for that except for the development of consciousness? And that that's part of our dominion over the animals is not simply to to use them as as uh, beasts of burden or as dinner but to help them feel safe in the world to help an animal feel safe that's part of your responsibility if you're going to domesticate an animal whether it's a farm animal or a pet if you're going to domesticate it and bring it out of the wild into your human sphere it seems to me that the love and the compassion and the caring that we put into the animal is rewarded by the animal. The animal will repay that. And that is something magnificent and spiritual in that, that an animal knows love. Right? That doesn't mean that we need to conflate the kingdoms and say animals are the same as people or people are no different than animals. The human kingdom is a different kingdom. You have a mineral kingdom, a plant kingdom, an animal kingdom, and a human kingdom, and some say several spiritual kingdoms above that. And we're evolving through these kingdoms. Some say there is a fifth kingdom that is now emerging in the world, a kingdom of conscious souls, a kingdom of humans that are compassionate, not just loving, not just I love you, do you love me, what's in it for me, uh, isn't love great, just you and me together? But a higher form of love that says, well, you know, I love everything. I love it when it's sunny. I love it when it rains. I, I, I'm, I love people I've never met because I'm empathetic, because I realize we all spring ultimately from the same source, find ourselves in the same situations. And if you can look at what scares people and what scares you, if you can look at injustice, starvation, and war, as much as that hurts, you will find that it stops hurting and begins to empower you. I think I mentioned last week, maybe it was in the podcast with Steve, but it might have been in this class last week, I was talking about the Mother Teresa quote that I saw on a Valentine's Day card that said, I'd never seen it before, it was really beautiful, it said, um, I have found the paradox that when you love until it hurts, it stops hurting. There's a breakthrough 
Remember our show on Ring Pass Nut? There's a breakthrough that happens when you love till it hurts. When you consider that between now and next Sunday when we meet here again, about 200 to 250,000 children in this world will die unnecessarily of starvation. And a, a month from now, about a million children in the world will die of starvation. And we are surrounded by people who would not hesitate to say, I don't care. I can't afford to care about that. I'm too busy trying to survive here and keep my head above water. And, of course, the supreme irony is that the problem is in the not caring, in believing that it's either you or them rather than all of us in this mess together. I mean, we are 6% of the world. We use 30 to 40% of the world's resources. Does that mean we have to all, uh, you know, live a 19th century lifestyle in dirt floor houses with kerosene lamps, uh, riding horses? No. We can still have our high technology, our super technology, our computers and such. You just have to learn to be more appropriate. The last computer I bought a few months ago is the first biodegradable computer. Apple computers are now completely biodegradable. There is nothing toxic in, in this computer. Nothing that will stay, nothing poisonous <laughs> that's going to stay in the ecosystem. Finally, it took a lot of years, but now we can make biodegradable computers. And now, when you go to buy your next computer, you can ask, is it biodegradable? Does it have mercury? Does it have any other toxic elements in it? Because I hear there are non-toxic computers being made now. Okay. Thanks, Robert, for that. In Tucson, Lorelei says, Aloha, Michael. Uh, awesome class, as always. Thanks, Lorelei. She says, what is the best mantra or meditation to attract money? Don't want to sound superficial, I'm talking about being self-sufficient, not greedy. Thanks. Love and peace to you, Doreen. Um, I can't answer that briefly, but I think uh, it begins by considering, Lorelei, that prosperity is more than money and affirming your prosperity, feeling prosperous. Uh, am I prosperous in health? Do I feel good today? That's prosperity. Am I prosperous in my friends and relationships? Do I have people that love me? That's prosperity. That's wealth. That's abundance. Do I have opportunity in my life? Do I have freedom? Right? Um, can we get this Patriot Act rescinded? Can we get habeas corpus back? Can we recover America that is free enough for us to go about our business without being spied upon? And can I find abundance and prosperity and opportunity? And then include in that the legal tender, the coin of the realm, you see, as part of the bigger picture. 
the long and short of it is prosperity comes to those who carry a prosperity consciousness, and a great way to initiate that is give some stuff away. You want to attract money? Give some money away, Lorelei. And do it with the intention that you may or may not get something back. It doesn't matter. Giving works best when there is no thought of a return. You're more likely to get a return when you don't expect it or care about it or need it to be in kind. Because it may come in a different account. You may give away money and get health and you don't even know it. Because what are you giving? You're not just giving the money, you're giving the consciousness, the the loving, kindness, compassion, the, the charity. You know, in the old days, charity, it's now an archaic use of the word, but charity, there was an application until a hundred years ago of the word where it was capitalized. Capital C, charity, was a reference not to giving money uh, to poor people or giving your your old ratty clothes to the goodwill. Charity meant, faith, hope, and charity. Charity, capital C, charity, meant the oneness of all things. That you cannot give without benefiting. You know that Emerson quote, one of the most beautiful, how's it go? What a, what a beautiful compensation of life. That I cannot do something for another person without benefiting myself. But the attention has to be on the giving, not the fact that you're going to receive something. We call that give to give rather than give to get. I learned that from Cody Bateman. I'll tell you about Cody Bateman one of these days. Give to give. And if you don't have money to give, then give away some flowers from your yard. You don't have flowers, grow some and give them away. You got a lemon tree out in back, pull some lemons off that tree. You can't eat them all. Or your avocado tree or whatever, give them away. Give away a little bit of time. Give away a little intention. You want to give somebody a nice gift? Listen to them. Just listen to them and care about them. You don't have to give people advice. You don't have to tell them what you would do in their situation. And then read books on prosperity. There are some wonderful books. The classics include Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill. You've got to read that, Lorelei. It's just a standard in the field. Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill. I also really like The Dynamic Laws of Prosperity by Catherine Ponder. Right? Catherine Ponder, The Dynamic Laws of Prosperity. And if you just go to a metaphysical bookstore, I'm sure, last time I was in Tucson, that was a really hip artist-type community, and I'll bet there are lots of really cool metaphysical bookstores there. Go to the Prosperity section. Those of you in Los Angeles, you know about the Bodhi Tree. Or in Pasadena, Alexandria too, the psychic eye. Go to the prosperity section and affirm that prosperity is your birthright and a natural condition by uh, <laughs> spending a little money on books on prosperity. Well, I think you can jumpstart all of that with just a uh, a gift. Give some stuff away and let it go. Feel the letting go. Out of Pasadena, Tom says, Hello, Michael, great topic. Can you touch on the law of attraction and how it might, might, might line up with compassion and feeling the pain of other people? Thanks again for your sharing and feeding our minds, Tom. Thank you, Tom. Well, um, yeah, I mean, that's more along the lines of what I was just saying. That is the law of attraction. 
to say that the best way to receive something is to give it away. And again, to the uh, majority of people in the world, that sounds completely backwards. Wait a minute. I have nothing. Uh, and yet, you know, I've got to see Slumdog Millionaire. Have you guys seen Slumdog Millionaire yet? I haven't seen that yet, but I've, <laughs> I've heard a lot about it. Uh, the best way to get something is to give away the very thing you want to you want to receive, and that is the law of attraction. I mean, we would we would much rather, I suppose, uh, bring in a great harvest and then save a few seeds to plant the following spring. But you're not going to have a great harvest if you don't plant some seeds. So it's always plant the seeds and then you reap what you sow. It's not receive and give. There's no spiritual admonition. Receive and tithe, right? It's give and receive. <laughs> it's what you what you emanate or radiate that creates the magnetic net that then attracts it back into your life. And it's really not even a give and receive so much as a an electromagnetic field that we create around us anytime we express loving kindness and compassion. You create a net, uh, a magnetic field, a unified field. There's your unified field theory. Yeah, let's see. Um, Robert, in Irvine, Robert in Irvine again says, do you think we need to have compassion or love for ourselves before we can share it with others? Or is it possible that caring for others ultimately is caring for ourselves? This latter question sounds paradoxical, but seems to have some ring of truth. Much of philosophy is paradox. Uh, let me recommend a book about paradox uh, to help you get settled with the fact that many of your uh, insights as you grow spiritually will be paradoxical uh, in nature and really seem topsy-turvy at first blush. But that's where God hides the truth, is, <laughs> is, in, is in paradox. Um, Philip Goldberg, Phil Goldberg, uh, who I'm happy to say is a friend of mine and has written a couple of really good books, one of which uh, he wrote 20, 25 years ago called The Intuitive Edge, and I really recommend that too. There's a book that came out several years ago called um, Road Signs, oh, what is the full title? Road Signs on the Highway to Life or something like that? I'd have to Google it. Road signs. Let's just call it road signs. The title is longer than that, but it's Phil Goldberg in a Google search. I'm sure you'll find it. And the subtitle has to do with paradox. And he he uses five or six examples of how truth is found in paradox and that it's the contemplation of these kinds of paradoxes, like giving away what you want to receive, that uh, I'm, I'm running out of money. I don't have any money. I'm scared to death about the economy, so I'm going to be generous and give some away. That doesn't make sense to most people, right? So in that sense, it's absolutely paradoxical. But when you understand the law of attraction, you don't eat your seed crop. You eat most of it and then <laughs> save some to plant and give away, right? Offer up. And again, you have to forgive if you wish to be forgiven. This idea of, oh, I'm, 
I have a grudge with this person, and I'm not going to forgive them until they forgive me, uh, then it ain't going to ever work. You, you've got to be the one to, to initiate the forgiving, to initiate the giving. And, yeah, it definitely is paradoxical. Uh, another Robert in the Irvine, this is Robert Fiegel, says, Aloha, Michael. I know some of these politicians want power, but what motivates the ones who can extend health care benefits and school money for the working man? Do they have no conscience at all? Great classes always have a great week. It goes back to power still, you know. Um, the fear that the Republicans have currently in Washington, especially at the federal level, that they've that they've become irrelevant, um, and if they join forces uh, and support the stimulus package, that they'll become even more irrelevant uh, is part of the ignorance of that way of thinking. What Barack is showing, not as a Democrat, but an enlightened human being who just happens to be more welcome in the Democratic Party than elsewhere, the consciousness that he's demonstrating says, if you join me, You'll not only be a better American, you'll also be a better Republican, because there are conservative values that should be maintained. It's just that Bush and Cheney were not conservatives. They were neocons. Bush used to be a conservative. Cheney used to be a conservative. But they switched, and they became neocons. And so there was no smaller government. It grew. Uh, there was no isolationism, traditionally a conservative value. They became imperialists. And, uh, and uh, so more paradox. But it's all power. I mean, they're all looking for power. They, they're acting on behalf of the rich who would have to pay uh, a, a significant piece of those benefits. Right? That's the only reason they call the stimulus package a spending package, it is a spending package, and somebody's got to pay. You're going to pay, and I'm going to pay, and by God, the rich people deserve to pay. I mean, who's helping them to be rich if it's not the working stiff, right? Who they then betrayed and abandoned in going to the third world forever cheaper wages. And don't get me going on that. It's power. And there is another kind of power. Real power, of course, is love and harmony and consciousness. Real power is is will and intention and purpose. What is our purpose? To grow. But false power, the power of appearance, the power of physical form, is you or me rather than you and me. They just don't see that power. They're, they're, that's the Faustian bargain, the pursuing patriarchy and the false power of you or me. Jessica Gwynn of Los Angeles, who um, is, I believe, yeah, Jessica is uh, one of my Twitter buddies here. We follow each other on Twitter. If you guys want to do that, I'm at Focused Passion on Twitter. It's pretty, uh, I know it's a thing that young people tend to do, and the baby boomers don't really do it, but it's a great way of telling people you get to insert URLs. You can put the address of this webinar in a, in a tweet message and send it out. Jessica says, compassion is my biz. Thanks for discussing the topic. You're welcome, Jessica, and thanks for being with us today. And up in Apple Valley, Don says, again, thanks so much for a great class, love, and peace. Uh, nice being with you all. 
Thank you, Don. And to everybody else um, who is listening but hasn't said hello on the telephone and on the web or who will listen to us in the future from our point of view, thank you so much. Let's do a quick meditation. This is the second week in a row I've had to extend, and I apologize here if I try to do these within 90 minutes, but I'm just getting... Uh, more and more excited about these webinars here, so let me just push a button and extend this class for a few minutes. So we can do a little visualization exercise and not get cut off, so let's install this idea of compassion, folks. And if this is a good time for you, if you can close your eyes and be comfortable safely, then do so now. And actually, create a sense a feeling of safety by imagining with your eyes closed. Just visualizing as if you're making it up. Use your mind's eye to imagine being in a very safe environment, maybe nature, in some sunny meadow or shady enchanted forest. Allowing my voice to go with you, but hearing the sound of birds singing in the wind in the trees. Feeling the wonderful ease and effortlessness of feeling so safe in such beautiful surroundings. And the feeling you're making it all up is exactly right. Feeling now even more safe. Let go of tension in your body. Feel it falling away. Take another slow, deep breath. And as you exhale, ah. Just go limp like a rag doll or soften like butter on a warm day. And feel yourself sitting upon the earth, rooted and connected to the earth. And I'd like you to imagine that nearby are people that you love, sitting all around you. People in your family, even if there are people in your family who sometimes test your love, you know them, you care about them, you love them. And imagine as they appear around you, sitting all around you, imagine loving them, your love effortlessly radiating out to them. And in like concentric circles, in the next ring of individuals sitting around you are people that you know, your friends, <coughs> and others that you've met in your life. Hundreds, maybe thousands of people, your imagination can hold this. Everybody whose name you've ever heard, those that are really good friends, those you know rather well and even those you've just met a few times. Some of whom you like a lot more than others. Some of whom you may love. Some of whom eh, you don't care all that much about, but you just don't know them that well. Imagine your love effortlessly emanating, radiating out to that next circle of friends and 
relatives. In the next concentric circle are people that you do not like, people that you've met who've given you a hard time. They may not be your enemy, but you really don't like them, and you don't care about them, and you don't want to know about them, and you don't want to be with them. Welcome them anyway. Dare to imagine them sitting in a ring around you. And what's it going to hurt to allow yourself to imagine, just imagine, loving kindness, heartfelt thoughtfulness, your caring nature and your compassion emanating effortlessly, radiating out through the ones you love the most, to those in your extended circle of family and friends, to people you don't even like. And then in the larger circle, still a greater ring all around you, people who are avowed enemies, people who you believe are working in exactly the wrong direction to divide the world, to conquer the world, to set up situations where there are losers the expense of somebody winning. And dare to allow your compassion, your love, and your empathy to radiate out to them as if as if you're beginning to realize that what makes you angry about their behavior, not only can you manage and release, but in doing so allow to see their fear. If you think there are evil people, those dedicated to evil in the world, consider that they are frightened little men. They may be very wealthy. They may be very, very powerful. They may be dedicated to doing great evil, hurting, killing, starving, torturing, genocide, torture. Consider they do that from fear. They just don't know any better. Like a crack addict, they become hooked on a false sense of power. Dare to allow your love and your compassion to radiate out to them. And finally, consider still other rings. of those you've never met, those you will never know, humanity en masse and in general, surrounding you in a still greater ring. And actually feel, form the intention in your heart. For this love comes not from you, but through you. And the more you give, the more you radiate and emanate, the more you receive to give. Don't, can you feel that? The more love you give, the more you receive, and thus you enhance the flow. So there is no shortage here. Love the people you love. Love the people you like. Love the people that have hurt you. Love the people that scare you. Love the people 
that you'll never ever meet and know nothing about. Love the animal kingdom. That is a separate kingdom, but is a kingdom that we draw upon. In particular, the mammals, but also the other members of the animal kingdom. In the plant kingdom, love the plant kingdom. The plants give us our oxygen and consume our carbon dioxide. The plants make the mineral kingdom available to us to nourish us and sustain us, to illumine and animate us. Thank the plant kingdom. Love the plant kingdom. Love the rainforests, the endangered species. Feel the harmony as your sense of radiance goes to the mineral kingdom and beyond, to all things known and unknown, such that you could practice imagining love without bounds and love for no reason. Having just as much love that you emanate as freely as it is provided to you. Why withhold love, kindness, forgiveness, and compassion when it is granted to us without reservation and without condition, whenever we are willing to let it in? In every moment, in every breath, is more love than you know what to do with, so pass it on, pay it forward, let it go. Why would you refuse to give away what has been given to you so freely? And be that love, and be that compassion, and be that loving kindness. Before I ask you to open your eyes, a few moments from now and return to the waking state. Commit to action, to behaving in your waking state out into the world with a practice that substitutes compassion and loving kindness, forgiveness, and just plain old letting it go, putting it down, for the knee-jerk reaction that comes from fear and the sense that there is someone or something here that's not you. Breathe into that. Let it go. And send love to it. Especially with people who make you angry or frighten you. Who upset you or irritate you. Take some ownership of your own fear and your own hurt and upset. Let that be more about you than whatever or whoever stimulated it. Use it as a symptom of self-awareness to heal yourself. That you might be an ever less resistant and more loving vehicle or instrument of universal love and compassion and 
the universe, the one verse, the universe, the one life, the one thing. And when all else dies away, everything that is not real and not true falls away and runs its course and passes on. It's the love, the kindness, and the compassion that remains that is truth and beauty and goodness. Know that to be true and hold it gently in your hands. As you reorient yourself to the sound of my voice, remember the room where you are. And prepare to open your eyes wide awake with a full memory and a deep understanding of the nature of compassion and forgiveness, the passion of compassion, the passion of loving kindness and forgiveness, a sense of harmony that leads from diversity to unity from your alienation, isolation, and separative fear toward the truth that is the universe, the one life. And as it feels right for you and appropriate, take a deep breath, hold for a moment, and as you exhale, ah, Open your eyes now, wide awake and alert, refreshed and rested, feeling good, with a full memory of what we just did, and reminding yourself that you've made a commitment to be ever more loving and kind. You'll mess up, you'll screw up, you'll forget, somebody will catch you off guard, piss you off, irritate you, you might even swear against them. But you can recover, and the more you meditate, the more you contemplate, the more you change the brain and its capacity to recognize more quickly and, and more effortlessly, and it'll be more in your nature to see your connection, where in the past you had only seen fear and separation. And then go deliberately to what scares you. Go to the gross injustices of the world. Ask yourself, what can we do better as a world? What can we do better as a nation? What can we do better as a family, as a community, and what can I do better as what appears to be an individual, a self? Thanks very much for being here today. That's uh, this week's Sageless Wisdom Mystery School. Again, sorry I ran over. I'm going to do better. In the <laughs> I know some of you, a lot of you really don't care, but uh, I'd like to keep it short of 90 minutes in the future. Remember to use the share one to a friend link, and uh, that's at theagelesswisdom.com, theagelesswisdom.com. Click on the homepage to go in, and then web teleconference, you'll find the archive of all of these programs. You can listen to as many as you want. And there's a little gadget right there, a link you can click on to forward these for no cost to as many people as you want, as often as you want, whenever you feel like doing it. And uh, same thing with FocusPassion.com. If you're not yet a contributor, you know, we'll give you these programs for free if you ask. But the idea is you get to be a contributor and get these bonus tracks that Steve and I do for as little as 99 cents a week. You get to donate more, but 
99 cents a week to set you up, and you can have those programs as a bonus track and send those programs as often as you want to as many people as you want, whatever you want, for no charge or fee whatsoever. FocusedPassion.com. Thanks, all of you. Again, happy day after Valentine's Day. Make every day a Valentine's Day. Honor your love. And as always, be gentle, love life, and take care of each other. See you next week. Aloha. This is Michael Bennett.